and welcome once again to The Goods, a film podcast brought to you by Brian, that's me, and Dan. Hey Brian, I am Dan. Thank you for uh, joining me today. Glad to be here. And today we are introducing a feature that I thought would be kind of neat to have here on the podcast, a recurring thing I'd like to cover I'm potentially calling this Violent Ends. And the idea is that these episodes are going to address double features, movies that depict very similar events in terms of their plot, but arrive at drastically different endings by the time the credits roll. And our first bill of fare is 2019's Best Picture winner, Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho from South Korea, and 1947's It Happened on Fifth Avenue. I had not seen either of these prior to this past week. And yeah, it was, it was very uh, interesting to catch up on the Best Picture winner, to revisit a Capra fun adventure, and then definitely see how they compared and contrasted. Yes, so the binding tie between these two films is that both stories are about poor families squatting in the home of a rich family. Basically, poor people living secretly in a mansion is the name of the game in in both of these films. I thought it was also interesting to note that it happened on Fifth Avenue, was nominated for the Oscar for Best Screenplay, It ended up losing out that year to another Christmas movie, Miracle on 34th Street. But Parasite won that Oscar along with quite a few others. Yeah, it was a big winner. And it's it's got really good ratings and reviews across the board from everything I've seen. It's like in the top 50 or something on the IMDb ranking chart. Yes, it it definitely cleaned up. I mean, it got Best Picture, first foreign language film to do that. I guess no matter what we say here in this podcast, you have probably heard from others that Parasite is one of the goods. So shall we dive into the stories at hand? Let's go for it. Okay. So 2019's Parasite opens with the Kim family, who are a poor South Korean family. They live in a gross basement apartment with cockroaches and a toilet that you have to sit on up near the ceiling. Apparently that's a thing where if the house is down low, they have to elevate the toilet so that the plumbing works right, the gravity of it all. It's an interesting architectural arrangement they have. It's also a physical manifestation of a theme from the film, which is kind of how low the Kim family is depicted societally. They're literally below the rest of the world. Definitely. There's a lot of layers here in terms of actual physical architectural layers, a lot of descent. So the teenage son of the Kim family has a friend who visits them periodically. The, the family has a job folding pizza boxes, making 
pennies or whatever the Korean equivalent of pennies is. And so they are not doing too well financially. But this college friend of the teenage son comes to visit and he tells this son, whose name is Ki Woo, he gets the nickname Kevin later, uh, and the friend tips Ki Woo off to an opportunity. The college friend has been tutoring the daughter of a wealthy family, and he recommends that Ki Woo could take over for him, basically. And to do this, he'll need to forge some college credentials because Ki Woo is not actually a college student. Uh, but the friend says, come take over for me as this girl's tutor. You know, I, I trust her with you, basically, because you're my good friend, and I know you're not going to try anything with this girl. And, of course, we know even before we see her, he's going to try something with this girl. But this is the end for Kiwu to seek a better life. But it's going to rely on deception. One thing I want to say right here, you've been using the character names I'm not even going to bother trying to use the character names. I'm just going to say the the Park son or the Kim father. The Kim is the poor family. The Park is the rich family. But if I tried to keep up with what their first names were, I would definitely be getting lost and getting mix-ups all the time. So That's a good point. You- I am going to try that, I suppose. See, when I did it that way, I was also getting confused because I would get the last names mixed up because Kim and Park are like the two last Korean names that I know. And I I don't know. It definitely yeah, no. <laughs> is a little bit of a challenge for us Westerners. My The way that I kept it aligned in my head is Park is like, I don't know if you're rich, you have like a park in your yard or like your yard feels like a park or you have time to go to the park. That was my my mental trick for remembering which one was which. That's a good point. And, I mean, it's easy to keep track of them in the movie when you're watching, but describing it textually is difficult. Essentially, Kiwu, the Kim son, gets, of course, Kim son could also be somebody's name. Anyway, <laughs> he gets established as the tutor of this girl, teaching her English specifically. I was kind of hoping we'd get more fake English than we get because, I mean, he must have some credentials because clearly the mom of the Park family speaks some English and he's able to win them over. So he he knows a little English. There's a handful of times they'll throw in either the same sentence repeated in English or like a few English words thrown in. I am not familiar enough with Korean cinema or kind of Korean dialogue to know if that is an intentional and noticeable choice or if perhaps that's just something that kind of happens when you're having a discussion in Korean that you throw in an an English word here or there, an American phrase. I would agree. I don't know what the common level of English saturation is, but I did find it very interesting that this wealthy family definitely seems to hold America in high regard. The son of the Park family is a Cub Scout, and he's very into, like, the Wild West and legends of Native Americans. and Or Indians, as they yes, call it in the film. Yes. He, he's obsessed with Indians. That's right. So Kevin gets established, and he begins a chain of infiltration. He finds out that the parks are looking for somebody to tutor 
the young son that we just mentioned in art. And so he recommends his sister to come aboard. And she spins tales that she's not just an art instructor. She's actually an art therapist who deserves more money because the son is presented as like disturbed, maybe autistic. I don't really know, but what it trickles down to is that he has had trauma in his past that we learn more about as it goes on. Anyway, the Kim sister brought aboard as an art teacher for the park son. So this movie is billed as kind of a multi-genre affair, which I think it is. It, one of the billings you'll see is comedy. In fact, that is the first that IMDb has, which I would definitely not put that as the primary genre <laughs> of this film. But I thought that there weren't that many laugh out loud moments. It was definitely more of a black comedy. Mm -hmm. But one of the moments that did make me laugh out loud was when she said, oh, yeah, I just Googled art therapy and said a few things from what I read there and how persuasive it was. I, I thought that was really funny. Certainly. It is an interesting mix of genres. And I would say it almost has a tipping point at exactly the halfway point of the film, which we will get to momentarily. So she is in as the art teacher and she then the Kim sister frames the parks chauffeur. She puts her underwear in the car to suggest that the chauffeur has been fooling around in his boss's car and successfully gets him replaced with her dad. The patriarch of the Kim family is now in the household as the driver. Then the final step of this infiltration is they concoct this really elaborate plan to oust the housekeeper, who is the longest serving servant in the Park household. They trigger an allergy that she has and through various tricks suggest that this allergy is actually a case of tuberculosis. They use that to get her out of the picture and bring the Kim mother aboard. And so now they are all working in the Park household. They're all siphoning off money. They are being parasites, you might say, because they have all falsified their credentials and they have also led the Parks to believe that they are not related. Sound right so far? Yeah, I'm with you. It's interesting. I would say who the parasite is in this movie is very intentionally ambiguous and layered. So I agree it's, there is a sense in which the uh, Kims are parasites off of the Parks, but I would say it definitely runs a little bit deeper than that. But not enough to object to your claim that that is what they are. Yes. So the director himself has pointed out the dual meaning of the title because obviously the rich people as well feed off of the people beneath them. They need to be driven around. It's almost like they don't have bodies of their own. They don't interact directly with the real world. They need all these servants to fulfill the daily tasks of life for them. But at this point, Kims are all in. Uh, despite their lies, they seem to fill their servant roles well and 
they're winning over the parks and Kiwoo, the Kim son, who as the English tutor takes the nickname Kevin, he begins a relationship with the park's daughter. And so there's almost the possibility that if he really gets in good with her, this connection could become official. They really could maybe all end up as a family. Although in a discussion between the Kims, they briefly mention, well, if that happens, who are you going to bring in to pretend to be your parents? Because obviously they've already presented themselves to the parks as not being related. But they are all having a party. The Kims are having a party inside the Parks Mansion because the Parks have gone away on a camping trip for their son's birthday. And this is where kind of the light switch flips. And I would say the genre changes from primarily a dark comedy to more of a thriller, arguably horror thing. And this is because as the Kims are celebrating their successful ruse, the old housekeeper returns, begging to be let into the basement to get something that she left behind. And this is like exactly at the halfway point of the running time. And suddenly things feel very tense. I agree. It's very abrupt. And you said it's like a light switch, but I actually think there is a visual light in the film from when the doorbell rings. And from that moment on, uh, everything that we've built to so far is just going to kind of escalate and twist into something a little more darker. And as you said, tense. Right. Their tricks up to this point have been portrayed kind of lightheartedly. And then with this sound cue of the doorbell, it's like, Oh, the chickens are coming home to roost now. Now the second half is the consequence half. The Kims are surprised as the housekeeper comes in and the rest of the family is hiding because the only person who's supposed to be there is the housekeeper, the mom and previous housekeeper heads down into the basement and she opens a bookcase that leads to a secret passageway and down into a whole network of tunnels under the mansion that turn out to be a large fallout shelter style bunker that's down there. And she explains that the previous owner of the house who she used to work for was an architect. And apparently, at least according to the film, this was a common arrangement among the wealthy in South Korea who had older houses because they had to deal with the threat of war with the North, basically. So anybody who could have a basically a fallout shelter has got these things tucked away and down in this secret basement, she has been keeping her husband hidden away from apparently loan sharks who he owes money to. At this point, the Kim's sneeze or trip or something and reveal themselves. And now we have two groups of squatters who have simultaneously figured out that neither is supposed to be there and a skirmish breaks out over who's going to tattle on who, basically. As this realization comes about, and they're at each other's throats, suddenly the tension is exacerbated further because the parks call, 
And this whole time it's been raining, torrentially raining outside. And the parks call and say, you know what? It was too rainy to camp and we'll be back home in eight minutes. That definitely ratcheted up the tension. And there's one specific detail of kind of what leads to that that I wanted to call out, which is that you noted that the old housekeeper eventually discovered that what was going on. And she took, I think it was a video of them talking to each other in this place. And it's very clear she's going to use that as kind of the evidence to reveal the ruse and hopefully get her job back. But it's the the fight over the physical phone, which has, it's like you can feel, I don't know if you've ever had something where like you're waiting for a text to come or you're like not sure if you should send this text. And it's kind of like this hot potato in your hand you're not sure what to do with. The tension around that phone with the open screen, they even have it in the text, getting ready to hit send. And like the, the old housekeeper and her wife, her husband are like holding up the phone tauntingly, using it to threaten them and get them to do what they want. And then they like squabble for the phone, they die for it. And it's just a brilliant little bit of physical suspense. I, I thought it was pretty marvelous. Right. And they even expound on the significance of the send button as being like a missile launcher and that having the power to threaten like that is basically what the North Koreans do all the time. That if you have something like that, that you can hold over somebody else's head, it makes you relevant and it makes you a presence that needs to be addressed. And so they're fighting over this phone The call comes in that the parks are coming back and that ratchets everything up to 11 in this fight to get control of the phone and to basically return everything to normal and get the people back into the basement, the housekeeper and her husband back into the basement. The housekeeper gets knocked down the stairs and sustains a head injury because she's tied up and she just falls onto the concrete smack on the back of her head. And it makes my skin crawl just to talk about it. Oh yeah. I don't frequently have visceral reactions to moments on screen, but the, it's everything that leads to it's the tension. What's going to happen when she gets to the top of the stairs. Oh God, who's going to get discovered. And it's all these moving pieces and things have just about kind of settled to where the Kims, uh, particularly the mom who's posing as the housekeeper, can uh, greet the family returning home, the parks, talk to them. But then there's still the, the old housekeeper trying to come up the stairs. And there's just this, this brilliant shot where the uh, Kim mom, the, the new housekeeper, kicks the old housekeeper down. And it's, you can kind of see it. And there's like this dark spot in where the, uh, the bookcase is open. And then you, you get that shot of her falling down and yeah it's just i was i don't viscerally respond often and i like let out an out loud oh my gosh as it was happening it's it's uh it's it's a good good moment a tense moment for sure so the old housekeeper and her husband are both tied up in the basement at this point and the housekeeper is now mortally wounded the kims aside from the mom are hiding the mom has to act like everything is normal And the family sneaks out of the house for the night. Then the next morning, some other things happen, but we do have more ground to cover. What it boils down to is the next morning, 
since the camping trip was a washout, the parks are going to throw a birthday party at the house for the son. And at this point, we find out that what traumatized the son uh, in his youth is that at some point in the past year or two, he witnessed the old housekeeper's husband coming up from the basement and it scared the daylights out of him, basically. So he's the only one who has seen the intruders previously. But they're setting up for this party and the parks are kind of obliviously going about this party planning process. They're sunny. As far as they're concerned, everything is normal. But the Kims have essentially just killed at least one person, possibly two. And they're kind of grimly going about their tasks just with very dark countenances and shuffling gates. And it's a really good contrast uh, between the two, the sunniness of the parks as they're calling up all their rich friends and like buying wine and sitting out cocktail tables as the Kims are just it's all, grimacing. It's also a good thematic layer here because it's, of course it is in this case, quite literally triggered by like the Kims encountering this near death and also kind of their punctured dream. I think it's not a coincidence that they're vaguely talking about this beautiful future, right? As everything goes sour and then they're kind of confronting the fact that whatever is going to happen, it's not going to be good. It's still going to be grim. It's still going to be brutal. And to me, that also plays into the, the themes of class very directly. That's a great point. In every tragedy story, you have to have a moment where it looks like things could possibly work out for the characters so that it is much more effective when everything comes crashing down. And so Kiwu, the Kim's son, I, I still think Kim's son just sounds like another character, but he brings a <laughs> fortune rock that his college friend gave him at the start of the movie. This is a, a thing that the friend said would bring good fortune, basically. Bring wealth to the family. I don't know if it's a feng shui thing, but you set it in your house, it brings you good luck. So now it's kind of serving a, a potent symbolic double role. It's kind of like a monkey's paw thing. He brings this rock with him to the house, intent on killing the guy trapped in the basement with it. But he goes down there, and the guy in the basement ends up getting the jump on him instead, Hits the sun with the rock, leaving him unconscious in a puddle of blood, and then heads off into the party, and we get this crazy, bloody rampage scene. It's just an absolutely bananas moment when the he appears at the party, and it, it's like a tense laughter moment because you know that everything is going wrong, but it just kind of all explodes in that that one moment when the former housekeeper's husband appears. I can't remember if he's naked. He's definitely yeah, all he just shuffles. He's he just shuffles out knife. there into this crowd of rich people. And for a while, nobody notices him because there's no, you know, there's like no jump scare music or anything. He's just there, right. this bloody crazy guy. And he grabs a knife and I don't know why this is the person he chooses, but he lunges first at the Kim daughter and basically stabs her right in the heart 
and she's she's out for the count pretty quick. She's down on the ground bleeding, and of course, at this point, the Kim parents run to take care of her, but seeing this ghost man appear from the basement again causes the park's son to collapse and have a seizure or something some kind of episode and so the park parents are of course panicking about that and demanding that their servants get him to the hospital not understanding for a moment that the kims are all related But of course, as they start talking to each other in the midst of this perilous, bloody craziness, that that's really what's been going on this whole time. One thing I wanted to praise to me is just absolutely masterful writing. So after Ki Woo, the the son of the Kim family, what's the next deception they have? Well, it's the getting the daughter in as kind of the art therapist. And yet we learn eventually that the thing that triggered that required that is that he had a seizure after seeing what they all thought was a ghost or what he thought was a ghost, but was in fact the husband of the old housekeeper. And then they go out of their way to call this cake, not just any cake, but I think specifically a therapy cake or they have trauma cake or something like that. It's not just a birthday cake. It's to help him deal with his trauma or or celebrate the fact that he's dealing with his (laughs) trauma or something. And then right as the cake is coming out, the man who they thought was the ghost walks out with the knife. It's just, it's just brilliant. Yes, there's a lot of things being brought to bear here. There is a lot happening. The Kim mother grabs a big meat skewer and runs the crazy guy through with the skewer. At this point, there's still the argument going on about, help us drive our son to the hospital. This is my daughter here bleeding out on the ground. And what's go- what the Kim father is going to do. As Mr. Park bends down to pick up the car keys, he's leaning over the corpse of this beskewered maniac. And he winces because he doesn't like the way he smells. And this has been a recurring theme we haven't commented on yet. But throughout the movie, Mr. Park has commented multiple times that Mr. Kim specifically smells bad and the park's son has figured out that all the Kims smell the same because they all come from the same house, obviously. This has been shown as the movie has gone on to grate on Mr. Kim more and more, being told that he smells bad, that he comes from basically from a poor family. And so now even in this moment of trauma... What gets to Mr. Park over everything else is that poor people smell bad. It's a great choice, too, because it's just so dehumanizing to talk about someone smelling bad, smelling poor and like old rags. It, you know, even above anything else, saying that they, they just smell gross is about as dehumanizing a thing as, as you, can, you can say about someone. They're like animals. Mr. Kim definitely does not like it. It sets off a bomb that's been lit long ago in this film. And he snaps, stands up, and stabs Mr. Park to death. I think it's interesting to think about how things would have gone differently after this point had he not done that. Like, if if everything else was the same, 
and he had just not stabbed Mr. Park, I think obviously the ending still would have been bad for everyone, but I don't know if it would have been as bad. That's interesting. So they obviously would have been outed. The Kim's daughter has been stabbed, but the Park's son has had the seizure. Right. But also the Kim's son has what we learn is some sort of brain damage from the rock being thrown on him a bunch of times. So, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. So it would have definitely been bad for the Kims for sure. But like the parks might've gotten out of this. I, I don't know. Certainly that's not what happens. We get an epilogue that tells us the Kim daughter did die from her injuries. The Kim son, as Dan mentioned, likely has some kind of brain damage. He is laughing like the Joker or something. He's maybe not processing everything that's going on, at least at the start. Uh, We learned that he and his mother, the Kim mother, received light criminal sentences for their fraud. And what's more interesting is that Kiwu determines where his father has disappeared to, which is that he is now living in the bunker himself underneath the mansion, which has new owners now. Obviously the parks probably didn't want to stick around there too long in the aftermath of the insanity. Kevin Kiwu, the Kim son, he discovers that the father is flashing Morse code messages out to him. This long message in hopes that the son will find it and read it, which he does and writes a message of his own to send back. I'm not quite clear on how he's going to get that message back to the father, because what can the father see that he will flash? I don't know. Yeah. I think the, the ending's interesting. It's to me shifts to a sort of magical realism where the practical details are a lot less important than, kind of this drifting acceptance of this dark and bizarre world that they live in now. Yeah, we get almost like a La La Land, what if kind of ending where the son is describing, oh, I'll go to business school and I'll get really rich and plugged into Korean high society and then I'll buy the mansion myself and then I'll let you out of the basement. Wouldn't that be great, Dad? And then it jumps back to the real world where obviously he's still poor. And I, I don't know how poor our listeners are. I'm kind of poor. And, you know, it's the whole thing where it's like you could work a million lifetimes at McDonald's or whatever your current situation is, and you're not going to be living at a mansion. So there's like a final sting. Right. And so that is Parasite. Is there anything plot-wise that we missed, or are we good to dive into the second half of our double feature? The one thing I want to comment on that you pointed out that I had not thought of is the connection to Joker, which was another one of the Best Picture nominees. They both have, as plot points, characters who cannot control their laughing despite really dark and grim circumstances. That's interesting. Maybe another double feature in the future. So the second half of our bill affair this evening is it happened on fifth Avenue from 1947 and at its face, you may not immediately see the two movies as connected, 
but I watched this on a Roku channel like a week or two after I watched Parasite the first time. And some connections definitely jumped out to me. Dan, you said that there were some things that had you laughing, I think. Yeah, especially just all of the the violence that that's kind of the culminating element and just this brutal physical reinforcement of the class system as is and how it just escalates to this uh, kind of absurd, jarring violence um, compared to the, the one that made me laugh is just the complete tonal opposite is when they're all singing Christmas carols and the police come along and say, what are all you poor people doing in this billionaire's house? And then they say, oh, we're just, you know, we're just hanging out here. Oh, come on. You should come hang out with us. It's, it's Christmas. Let's all be happy. And then the, the cops are like, oh, that's a good point. I should invite my wife. And then it's, it's just like this ludicrous fantasy in 2020. That's right. That it, honestly, it's just as absurd as the uh, as Parasite. Yes, there's no singing Christmas carols at the end of Parasite, and no one ends up <laughs> impaled on a meat skewer on the end of It Happened on Fifth Avenue. I, I feel like real life is somewhere halfway in between those two. <laughs> but that's why we watch movies, is to experience the extremes of drama. So to touch a little bit on the plot here of It Happened on Fifth Avenue... It opens with a hobo named McKeever who has a habit of squatting in other people's homes while they're away. Uh, Specifically, he's got a long running system for inhabiting this one mansion that's always boarded up in the winter. It belongs to a guy named Michael O'Connor, who's described as the second richest man in the world. Every year at the start of November, McKeever enters a hole in the fence in the back of the house and somehow gets into the house through the sewer system. Not entirely sure how that works. It just shows him crawling through the manhole. At first I thought it was going to be an actual bunker, just like we have in Parasite. But it's not too far off. Somehow he gets in through the pipes and is able to get up into the house and he has rigged all the electrical lights so that when somebody opens the front door, the lights will turn off. And that's how he can tell each night when the night watchman comes in to take a look around by taking these precautions, he's been able to live there all winter long for the last three years. And he can walk around the house in his, in the smoking jackets of the rich man and take bubble baths and play pool and live off his larder, basically, in secret. And this guy is pretty sturdily built for a homeless guy. He's, he's, he's rotund. Yeah, I've never seen someone homeless be quite that well-fed. But he seems like a stock character or something. Like, like his name is McKeever. He reminded me of Mr. McCobber from uh, Charles Dickens, David Copperfield. Just this... This guy who's perpetually poor, but full of wise sayings. Maybe this was just me misreading the film and not paying close enough attention. I actually didn't really know what was going on. It did not occur to me that he was an imposter right away. 
So I don't know if, if that was just implied by what was going on, but it wasn't until he revealed his identity in, in a scene that you're going to get to that I realized that, that he was actually not uh, this, the world's second richest man. Oh, that's really interesting. So when I watched this the first time, my family members had already watched it and they showed it to me. So I think I either read the little blurb about it or they said that he was a hobo sneaking in. But I could totally see how you could see it. he was the actual homeowner and like maybe he locked himself out and he was just going in the back way for some reason. Uh, at this point, we meet who I guess would be our protagonist, Jim, a young man struggling to make a living after his services as a soldier are no longer required. World War II has just come to an end. This is, you know, a year or so after the end of the war. And so he's looking for a new job. And he is ousted from his apartment building by one of Michael O'Connor's building projects. So he's got a chip on his shoulder and he's got an ax to grind once he, you know, if he ever runs into Michael O'Connor. At this point, McKeever is perambulating around the city in his millionaire clothes and he happens upon Jim and he invites him to join him in the mansion. And just like Dan, Jim briefly assumes that McKeever is O'Connor because uh, obviously he's wearing his clothes. He's living in his house, inviting house guests. But shortly thereafter, the two squatters are getting established in the house and they come across a young woman who's there at this point viewers have learned that this is the daughter of the real o'connor she's really the daughter of the real o'connor and she has returned home i guess she left a boarding school or something it's not super important why she's there, but she is there at her house. They interpret her presence as also being an intrusion. Uh, McKeever and Jim both believe that she is a fellow interloper. Yeah, it's, it's clever writing the way that she comes in and says that she's his daughter. And because they're doing the, the ruse, they immediately think she's doing the same thing even though she's being honest and that whole exchange there is, is kind of fun seeing the totally different perspectives of the different people, but she catches on really quick and is uh, very happy with the, I mean, she doesn't really seem to be perturbed that total strangers have invaded her childhood. Yes. Home. Yeah. There's a lot of dramatic irony here in terms of what the various characters are aware of, because in this moment, Jim still thinks that, the guy who brought him into the house is O'Connor himself. And at this point, McKeever explains that he is squatting there to everybody. So the, some layer, some layers of the irony are pierced at this point, but there is more to come. And yes. So the daughter falls quickly for Jim somewhat inexplicably hard to understand why she's suddenly okay with all these people suddenly squatting in the house. But it seems like she kind of views her dad as a fuddy-duddy and just overly uptight. And I kind of get the sense that 
if something is going to stick in his craw, she's on board with it. So it's like, oh, there's people here in the mansion. This will make dad mad. Awesome. I don't know. That was kind of what I got from it. Definitely some of that that vibe. I think she's supposed to be like the the character who's rich, but who's not burdened by it in any sort of psychic way. She's just like a happy person. Yeah, you know? she is a ray of sunshine. So they decide they're going to share their good fortune, basically. And Jim invites some of his fellow ex-veterans to bring their struggling families and share the household as well. And so he's got a couple friends. Uh, at least one of them has a wife and kids. And so their retinue of imposters, intruders, is growing. I thought it was interesting that one of Jim's friends is the skipper from Gilligan's Island. I did not know that they were the same actor until I saw that in your notes. Here. Yep. He's younger, he's thinner, but it's definitely the skipper. So Trudy grows attached to Jim. This is the daughter, O'Connor's daughter. And she desires to win him over without him learning her true identity. And so it's interesting because in Parasite, it's the poor people who have adopted false identities to ingratiate themselves with the rich people. But here in It Happened on Fifth Avenue, or as I've abbreviated it, Ihafa, it is the opposite. And it is now the rich people who are going to adopt identities to try to ingratiate themselves with the poor people. Because soon Michael O'Connor arrives. I think he receives word that his daughter has been spotted back in the city or something. And so he's come back early from his vacation. And his daughter convinces him to play the part of a homeless man so that he can enter the household while still hiding his identity. I didn't quite understand his impetus for doing so. It was like very abrupt. I guess she had that little monologue where you never understood me or tried to understand me. I'm really in love with this guy. You got to come meet him. Please play along with this. And he, it's like his thawing of his shell and he's like, okay, fine. I'll give it a try. Something that it might be hard to see Mr. Park in Parasite doing. But humor ensues when McKeever, as the lord of the house, is giving this newcomer a hard time. Basically, O'Connor is struggling to win over these squatters in his own house when his instincts tell him, probably rightfully so, that all of these things are his property. And at any point, he should theoretically be free to establish himself in his own home and, and have things his way rather than serving as a servant to these people who have set up shop there. Yeah, the, the inner leftist in me was very grateful that they were showing this commune, this cooperative of all these people that they're okay with it. But the the capitalist cog in me that has to put bread on the table and pays a mortgage every month was kind of furious at everyone for like, I don't know, as you said, acting like it's not a big deal that they are living in someone else's property. They're like, and they're not just living there. They're like hanging things and 
taking his food and his expensive cigars. Uh, and there stuff. was a good quote that I thought was pretty funny in consideration of both of these films where McKeever says, not in my 20 years of living in other people's homes have I ever been faced with a situation like this. It's, it's a good line. I, I was wondering where would be a good point to work that quote in in Parasite. <laughs> I've never been faced with a situation <laughs> like this. Probably at, in, somewhere in the midst of the bloody rampage at the end. Is that before or after the beskewer? <laughs> Do you think they would say that? Hard to say. Up for interpretation. Eventually, though, Trudy's mother... Michael O'Connor's estranged wife also arrives at the household. The daughter clues her into what's going on, and she also decides she's going to play the part of a poor person squatting here at the mansion that is actually kind of hers as well. But she's going to be their cook, basically. And there's this moment where Michael O'Connor smells what she's cooking, and... It kind of brings him back to the old days. It melts his heart. A couple episodes back, we talked about uh, the critic from Ratatouille, where the food brings him back to a an moment in his past, a simpler time, and it kind of changes his personality, warms his heart. And this is the moment where we get that here with mean old Michael O'Connor kind of coming around. Maybe I missed it, or I don't know if it was very clear who was doing the cooking at that moment, but I thought it was going to end up being Jim doing the cooking, and that was the way he was going to uh, endear himself to O'Connor, but it ended up being the estranged wife doing the cooking. That would have been good. I, I kind of like that angle. But it serves to bring the mother and O'Connor back together again, Living in this impromptu family, they kind of reestablish their spark. And so this group spends some time living together. And McKeever's wisdom, he's got these bon mots, these sayings that he's always spewing. And they're always self-serving, but they help the other people too. And they ultimately guide the O'Connors to reunite uh, Jim and Trudy get together and Jim and his army buddies sort of as a subplot strike up this successful real estate development idea where they're going to use old army barracks that aren't being used anymore in the wake of the war and develop them into affordable housing that ex-veterans can make use of. And so basically what it boils down to is we get the stereotypical Hollywood ending. It's very Capra-esque. And everyone is friends. They all part ways at the end with McKeever, none the wiser that O'Connor was really O'Connor. He just thinks he successfully led a commune, basically. And he heads off to live in other people's houses at other times of the year. And O'Connor observes wistfully that when he comes back for the winter next year, he'll be welcome to walk in the front door. I wonder what that exchange would be like, though, because he doesn't know who O'Connor is at that point. So when he tries to come back, is he going to be surprised when this guy that he thought was another squatter is claiming to actually be O'Connor? Definitely. Maybe we'll discover in the sequel. 
Yes, there are questions the that, that never are was. unresolved. Questions that never arose in Parasite because it had a very different ending. And so now let's comment briefly on some, some compare and contrast, some commonalities and some differences between these two films. So at the surface, the most obvious commonality, we have a chain of people bringing more squatters into a wealthy household. Some other things I noticed, there's a relationship between the wealthy family's daughter and the young male imposter. Because the relationship between the Kim's son and the Park daughter and Jim's relationship with Trudy in It Happened on Fifth Avenue. I also thought that some of the most effective scenes are exchanges between McKeever and O'Connor in It Happened on Fifth Avenue and between Mr. Park and Mr. Kim in Parasite. It's these scenes of tension played for comedy in It Happened on Fifth Avenue, but pretty much mostly for tension in Parasite, where we get the rich guy and the poor guy kind of sharing their worldview and the tension that arises from that. It's really interesting, the mirror that they have there. I hadn't thought about those two specific relationships, but it's true because in, in Parasite, you have the actual billionaire giving orders to the faking but actually poor driver. And then it's all sort of twisted upside down. But as you said, still kind of one of the key relationships where you have the squatter giving orders to the actual billionaire who's pretending to be a poor himself. And then another commonality that might be a little difficult to explain, and it's just kind of the weird connections that your brain forms when you're specifically comparing two movies. But at pivotal moments in both movies, somebody makes a soup that like a lot of significance is invested in. In Parasite, in the moment when, the first moment when everything's going to hell, when the parks call and say that they're coming back early from the camping trip, and so something quickly needs to be done with the people in the bunker, and everything needs to be returned to normal in eight minutes, there is an additional requirement that the housekeeper needs to prepare the son's favorite food, the park son's favorite food, because of course he's disappointed that the camping trip got called off early. And so his mom says, can you please make this dish called what the subtitles call Ramdon? I think the Korean word is chop a curry or something. It's, it's this dish that's made by combining ramen noodles and udon noodles. And these are dishes that, I mean, even in America, you can get them for like 40 cents a package. You know, it's a very cheap snack food. Packets of ramen, packets of udon. But there's symbolism because in Parasite, she 
the mother also requests that they add this like super duper high grade sirloin to the meal. You know, it's super cheap noodles, super fancy rich person beef, which I think sirloin is like not even the accurate translation. It's like whatever the Korean equivalent of Wagyu Kobe beef is from Japan. Then in It Happened on Fifth Avenue, this moment of connection between O'Connor and his estranged wife happens around a pot of what's called slumgullion. Just a beautiful yes, word. Yes, this is apparently a poor man's stew enjoyed, it's implied, among Irish immigrants. Basically, the poor Irish people make this stuff and bond around slumgullion. And now he's the richest man in the world, but he can still appreciate a pot of it, especially when his wife makes it. So I don't know what it says exactly, but I think it's interesting that both of these movies have a moment that focuses on the appreciation that the rich people have for cheap food. Yeah, sort of like this interconnected humanity that the rich people actually have, and it makes them, at least in the case of uh, Fifth Avenue, it makes him kind of come back to the mindset of the poor people. And, of course, in Parasite, it's all of these kind of twisted up things at once. It's, uh, it, as you said, there's kind of the layers of kind of the trashy mixed with the absurdly over-the-top luxurious that these rich people's lives lead sorry that these rich people uh get to enjoy and then also just the physical tension in the the scene of having to prepare it as the utter chaos is unfolding around them right so it's a it's a moment that's used in one film just to highlight absurd tension and in the other as a heartwarming beat you know, one shows the callousness of the wealthy people in a sense, and the other shows the humanity. And so it's a similar moment used for very different things tonally. I, for one, am looking forward to the uh, Pixar movie about the Irish immigrant mouse who wins over the uh, cynical critic by making his slum gullion. <laughs> right. So we've touched now on some of the differences as well between the two movies. Obviously, they end up in very different places. The tone, totally different. Are there commonalities or differences you'd like to comment on that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, I think it's kind of like the same trappings, but the entire structure of the story is built in very different ways. Uh, in It happened on Fifth Avenue. It's kind of a gentle farce almost. It's like, all about the mistaken identities and kind of trying to really learn to understand each other. Whereas in Parasite, um, it's rather than revealing how they are similar, it very much reveals how they live fundamentally different lives and are essentially living like totally differently, the, the poor people and the rich people. And that one's built more around this kind of caper of, deception it's it even though it has some similarities it's almost more like a heist movie 
at least the uh, the the portion where they managed to to move in to squat to to take over as the parasites as the uh, all the different servants. That's a good point. It is heist like. It puts a lot into the presentation of how this plot unfolds of how they're going to step by step win the rich family over. And that adds to the feeling that the first half of the film is almost a different movie from the second half, at least in terms of what kind of movie it is. And we also pointed out, I mean, it's, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone, but just how drastically different the sheer warmth and congeniality in It Happened on Fifth Avenue is singing Christmas carols, bringing people together and just that mirrored against the ultra-violent conclusion. Yes, so that's the whole name of the game here in what I'm calling Violent Ends, these double features that end in drastically different places. Parasite does not end with them all singing Christmas carols together, and no one ends up shish-kebobbed in It Happened on Fifth Avenue. But imagine for a moment if they did. What would be the effect... (laughs) If we suddenly swap these endings, where where does that take us? Well, for one, I think uh, it happened on Fifth Avenue would never have been screened anywhere because it would have violated the Hayes Code. That's fair. I guess it would have taken uh, the level of satire intended in uh, Parasite to a whole new level of, of fantasy. And it happened on Fifth Avenue. Who would have been the violent one? Actually, you know, they had all those soldiers. I think they could have put up a really good fight against the O'Connors. They really could have like held held. Oh out man, that could have been a like while, a whole hunchback of Notre Dame thing, fortifying the house, pouring yeah. hot lead out the windows. Man, yeah, it could almost have been like a hostage movie if you were going to go that route of like inter- of making it a thriller in the second half. It's like, oh, they realize who everyone is. And they realize that this is their ticket to get rich. This is their ticket to get maybe even that military base they want to take over and make a commune as they just have to extract a few quick bucks out of the O'Connors. But, uh-oh, the police find out about it and things spiral out of control. And at some point, someone gets shish kebab. I don't know which one, who, who that's going to be, but you know it's going to happen. <laughs> Gotta have the shish kebab. And I, I think it's also very funny imagining the, the Parks and the Kims Christmasing together. We do get at one point uh, uh, what seems like a Christian prayer. Uh, I know that the Christian church is fairly well established in various flavors in South Korea. So certainly it would be interesting if we get a Christmas carol scene. It's funny you say that because it's not even that like outrageous a thing to fantasize about because one of the characters in the movie even does that. Like they spend right before things go south, they they actually spend this time thinking about what would like life be like if we could just all hang out together, sharing this. That's wealth. right. I mean, it's it's a very similar thing where a family could form here at the end of it happened on Fifth Avenue does form, but it's just not the way it goes. Alas, and that's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. Sometimes it's caroling, sometimes it's obscurement. Sometimes we're kicking uh, all tied up people down the stairs in a secret bunker so that they suffer 
Terminal concussions. <laughs> I was not. I was not. Oh, I don't like that moment. It gets to me. Certain things, <laughs> certain kinds of injuries presented in movies definitely impact me. Head trauma is one of them. Especially when you like can't prevent it. The, like the oh yeah, when the hands the cringiness of that. Yeah, I'm with you. And that's our fourth installment. But we have a couple bits of final business to cover. So are there good things about these movies we've not talked about yet? I want to call out a couple of things. So one is Parasite. We did talk a little bit about the blend of tones and genres. It's To me, it's a miracle that it pulls it off without ever... I mean, it's certainly jarring when it shifts from tone A to tone B to tone C from heist style movie like we talked about to fantasy of them living in this house to the tense thriller portion then just the bizarre insanely violent ending and then I called it magical realism like this sort of weird serene coda to me it's just first-rate filmmaking that you can pull all of that off and have it all actually feel like the same movie it's gripping it's a very good story and it Definitely deserved the best script Oscar. I was telling my wife, who I watched it with, that it's the first time I can remember watching, in a long time at least, that I can remember watching a best picture and actually feeling like there's a good chance that this will be remembered as the best movie of that year. Or perhaps the iconic movie of that year, <laughs> nothing else. Um, I also want to call in particular the section. We already talked a lot about it, so I won't belabor it. But basically from when it turns into a thriller, basically until I would say the peak is like until they manage to get out of the house. To me, that was just like 10 out of 10. Absolutely gripping, masterful filmmaking action. There were so many things happening at once, but you could always really tell what was going on yet it still managed to feel chaotic and tense and like everything was always just uh just an inch away from going into complete catastrophe for the kims and it also just kept escalating just things got worse and worse and worse and closer and closer and yeah every uh, every aspect of it works the way it's shot and edited and the blocking of the actors you know, that we can see where they are, but yeah. the parks can't see where they are. It's all pretty masterfully Absolutely. executed. It's, so I think this director's most famous movie before Parasite was um, Snowpiercer. I have have not. you seen Snowpiercer? It's about a train, right? So, yeah. So it it takes place in a train, and part of the story of the filming of it is he built it wasn't just like normal sets, but he had built these spaces that were very much like actual train cars, like similar proportions and walls and stuff to give a good sense of the actual physical space and containment of all the action going on in Snowpiercer. In my opinion, Snowpiercer is nowhere near as good a movie as Parasite. It's a little too gonzo and weird for me, but one of the things I liked about Parasite is how you really get a sense of the physical space. Like, it's very, I've been using the word physical, like you can imagine the space and kind of feel it almost as if you're looking around your own room. And as you mentioned, Parasite does this really well, just the way, I mean, the, the way it shoots everything and the way that those spaces make you feel 
from the the low down poor apartment for the Kims, so cramped in so many ways, to the kind of languid, spacious park mansion, and then how those things kind of get caught up in all the action and all the the different things that happen. Um, really good visual sense in this movie beyond everything else that we've praised. Definitely. And I thought uh, the the father of the Kim family had the best acting job here. Although I also really liked the park mother, the rich mother, but the, the way that uh, the Kim father, and I, I should look up the actor's names, but I know I would butcher it. The way that he uh, kind of had to go through like 50 different emotions throughout the film from desperation. He was resigned. Sometimes he was uh, hopeful, like clinging to a thread of hope and then snapping at the end to me was just, it was really good acting in, in my opinion. Certainly he's got this way, especially whenever he's interacting directly with Mr. Park, just of this, it like comes over his face, this grim, what is the word for it? <laughs> Aggravation. Yeah, it's a it's glower. Like a I don't know. Uh, yeah. This this darkening of his countenance, and it is very well realized. I also wanted to give a shout out to the soundtrack choices. Specifically, there's this folksy credit song that plays at the end of the movie. Uh, I guess the title is "One Glass Soju" or "A Glass of Soju." I think it's actually sung by the guy who played Kevin, the Kim son. And it just is an ironic capper to the whole thing that you have this kind of folksy Korean boy band sounding song after everything that's just transpired. It's like a final ironic yeah. tonal shift. That's good. I didn't really notice that, but you're, you're right. For sure, that that is an inspired choice. Some good things about it happened on Fifth Avenue. I think you got to appreciate an occasional dose I, of uh, Capra-esque sentimentality. Would you like to add something else about uh, our last film? No, but I was going to say, you might not want to call them good things. You might want to call them swell oh, things in the spirit of it. Because swell is one of those words that they use uh, in like anything pre-1960 and pre-1970. That and the word fool are my two favorites that you just don't hear people use anymore. But uh, everything's swell. I think you pulled some choice quotes from some reviews of this movie during the period. Uh, critics were not for this film across the board. It didn't seem like. We'll talk about that in just a second as far as things that may not have been so good. But I think in this day and age, at least, you got to appreciate a little bit of uh, Capra-esque sentimentality. I actually have, I was going to narrate that, that review. So since you brought it up, there's just so many great pre, pre 1960, you know, mid-century words here. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. This is from June 11th, 1947 in the New York Times. A favorite Hollywood pastime in its films, anyhow, is that of deflating stuffed shirts and melting frigid hearts. The boys go for such an opportunity like a snowball goes for a silk hat. And so it is not surprising to find this ancient monkey shine indulged again in the Rivoli's current antic. It happened on Fifth Avenue. It's just Hollywood, always ears. indulging those ancient monkey shines. 
I had to look up the word monkey shine. My only, only other time I'd heard that word is uh, when they're making fun of Pierce in the show community for being old. He, he says he talks about how he can still partake in a good monkey shine. What is a remake or a reboot aside from indulging in an ancient monkey shine? Um, good point. But let's see. I quoted another review here. Uh, they said it was a whiff of comedy and a whirlwind of hokum. So <laughs> that's good. Certainly, I guess if movies like this were coming out every year, if Frank Capra made a Christmas movie last year, made a Christmas movie this year, and so on and so forth, it would be easy to get tired of this sort of overwrought sentimentality. They probably would start to feel about that the way that I have been feeling about Marvel movies for the past eight years. Exactly. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, point out is I thought uh, the actor Charles Ruggles, who plays the, O'Connor. the rich guy, what's the last name? It's Mick something. Oh, yeah, O'Connor, excuse me. I knew it was something Irish. I thought he was really good. I thought he was the best because um, he, he, like – the way he got kind of flustered by everything I thought was funny, but he also seemed like a legitimately good actor. Like I thought his romance with the estranged wife, despite being like the D plot of the movie was one of the more interesting things here. Cause both those actors were pretty good and it kind of felt like a actual realistic domestic drama, but it still kind of fit in with everything else that was going on. So yeah, Charles that. Ruggles is a character actor that pops up in a lot of things. What I recognized him from is there's a live action Disney movie from the sixties called the ugly dachshund. And he plays the vet in the ugly dachshund. Um, (laughs) So that's what I remember. So let's touch on some things that were not quite as good as we head towards our end here. You got anything? I do. So for parasite, honestly, there's not many things that were not good for me. The only thing is I absolutely adored the movie up until basically the violence ends. And then it has this kind of coda for about 10 minutes. I don't know where we've already talked a lot about it, but the tone of it is very different. And it kind of felt like uh, the director didn't like he had envisioned and like designed everything to this one payoff moment and then didn't really know what to do to wrap up the movie. It just felt a little off to me and kind of aimless to me. I know that's part of the, the point. The epilogue but, specifically? Um, yeah, yeah, all of that. Because I, I really had almost no complaints about everything that led up to it. I don't know if what you thought of the those last 10 minutes, but I would say if anything came close to not working for me, that, that was it for me. In yeah, I think I would agree. It seems kind of unnecessary. At the same time, though, I feel like if we didn't get it, we'd wonder what happened to those characters. So it works okay in that it it does tell us what happened to the characters, but then it doesn't fully resolve on that either because then you have to wonder what is ultimately going to happen with the dad trapped down there. Yeah, and I wanted to know what was going on with the parks too because we just know that they left town, but we didn't really see anything else. Like, how did the son end up at that? Did he? Do we know if he died? Yeah, I don't that? think they answered that. You're right. I would want to know where they ended up. And even in his narration, the Kim son doesn't say. 
Another thing that I kind of had a hard time cracking, I'm not sure exactly if this was intended to be kind of ambiguous, but the the character of, I guess, Kevin, the the son of the Kims family, he he's kind of the main character up until we get that dramatic turn. And then the dad of the Kim family is kind of more the, the center at that point. And I kind of feel like we lost the internal uh, thread of, of that character. Kevin, I guess is his nickname. And I never really knew how to interpret his feelings towards the park daughter. Like, I think it's intentionally a little vague. Like he's kind of blending this desire for, for wealth with his attraction to her. But also there's like, I don't know if it was intentionally kind of an ooky factor of the fact that she's younger than him and still in high school. It's, it's all, that part was a little bit ambiguous to me. And I just kind of wanted to get a little more into the head of, of Kevin, but maybe if I watch it again, I'll, I'll kind of get a better sense of that. That's interesting. I, think you're right that there's two sides to everything that the Kims are doing. Like we kind of want to see them succeed because they're the underdogs and they're poor. And I mean, I think everybody, no matter where you're at financially, you can relate to wanting more. Um, and the, the tricks that they're playing don't seem too insidious, but there's also the fact that they are fooling these people. They are defrauding people. They are taking things that they're not earning legitimately. And so there is an ooky element, like you said. Other than that, I don't really have any complaints about the movie. It's super I, I strong. Thought it was just, I thought it was fantastic. For sure. As for It Happened on Fifth Avenue, I want to point out that basically almost nothing actually happens in the story once we get everything in place. And I really felt the last half hour drag. I mean, we, it was obvious where everything was going to end up about, I don't know, 55 minutes in an hour in, and then <laughs> it takes a long time to get there. And I kind of wanted a little more twistiness in it, but I really liked the setup. It was quite charming characters story. All, right. all pretty they good. they so probably could have taken out downer. everything um, to do with the, if not the whole army development, at least the army friends, uh, it didn't add a whole lot. I They needed something for yeah. Jim to do to not just be a bum, I guess. Uh, so it serves that purpose. Right. Agreed. Yeah, and then also there's this whole subplot of getting the, the job out of uh, the country, which gave me one of my favorite lines of the film, which is uh, when uh, O'Connor is uh, trying to tell his colleague to get a job for Jim so that Jim can be out of the picture. He says, I don't care if it's teaching Eskimos the boogie woogie or milking whales in Patagonia, only it must be out of the country. <laughs> Just a little bit of colorful writing there. And then later when he's trying to convince Jim that it's a good idea, he's like, but in Brazil, it's the tin capital of the world. It's like, why would you not want to live in Brazil? There's so much tin. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I don't know. Um, the, but about the army people, you're right that they weren't necessary, but they did give me my single favorite bit or gag, which is when they're talking about marriage and the one one of the wives of the soldiers is talking about how great marriage is and how great her marriage is in particular. And she recounts how these, these conversations that she has with her husband. And she says, so I tell him this, and then I think it's Whitey. And then Whitey said, 
Uh-huh. And she did that like four times. You know, isn't marriage great? Uh-huh. What if we got married? Uh-huh. <laughs> and and that was how it happened. Was that was that your experience, Dan? <laughs> Not exactly like that. Some similarities, but you know. I also agree with you that the romance did not make any goddamn sense it was so abrupt between jim and o'connor's daughter whatever mary i think her name is it just like they had one scene where he teaches her how to play pool and they kind of look in each other's eyes and get interrupted kissing and then now she's talking about how oh i'm gonna marry him like literally the next scene it does not make any sense yeah it feels like a reel is missing or something (laughs) uh and for me, the I just did not really enjoy McKeever as much as the movie wanted me to. I know you said you kind of thought that his interactions with O'Connor were one of the stronger points. But for me, I just found it kind of annoying, like putting myself in the perspective of O'Connor. I know that's the point, but it was just, God, shut up, dude. And then out of the last five minutes, a lot of it is devoted to like building up how important this McKeever guy is when I thought he was like the most annoying character that we had spent time with throughout the whole movie. So, <laughs> Well, he starts it all off, too. It, I mean, he's the he's the driving force, whether you like it or not, I think. Yeah. But certainly you don't have to like him because everything he does and says is self-serving. And and that's that's used to comic effect, I think. Um, yeah. There's scenes where he's like, "Well, Mike, we need to go out and get jobs because you know, eleven people eating the food, people are going to notice sooner than just one person eating the food. So we got to go out and get jobs." And then the job that they get is shoveling snow, and it's O'Connor having to do all the shoveling. Oh yeah, he won't do any of the shoveling himself. He's like, "Come on, McKeever." And McKeever's like, you know what I'll do? I'll get you a bigger shovel. <laughs> so he, it's certainly I can see how that would be grading, but I also think that that may be intentional. I agree with that, yeah. One other review of the movie before we transition to our signature section, but um, this is from Amazon, and this is the username Lilani Kohani. She posted this review on January 29th, 2019 for it happened on fifth avenue and i just wanted to read this to you because well i'll just read it to you having seen this on tcm that would be turner classic movies having seen this on tcm sometime in the past and only a portion of it at that i knew i had to purchase this charming endearing really film it's wonderful values and feel good quality bring back those early years before the crazy sci-fi 50s that make me if no one else Yearn for those quieter, kinder, and gentler times. I love older movies, 30s mostly, but the 40s too. They are entertainment, not schlock, realism, or what passes today as acceptable. I'm no fan of the Hayes Code of censorship, but jeepers, people. Private things between people don't have any bearing on the stories and are simply gratuitous entries to movies rated R for immature audiences. Mature audiences don't need the graphics. Six exclamation points. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that Lilani Kohani is a racist. I mean, that's just a guess. All right. And that's where we end. But we don't don't need the graphics because we're mature audiences. (laughs) Well... We like to think that we can appreciate those films with and without the graphics with six exclamation points, as we've tried to show with our varied offerings in this installment. 
So, moment of truth, I think, now. Where do we come down on are they good? Uh, as listeners will know, we have a eight-point goodness scale ranging from very not good all the way up through toward day good. So, Parasite, is it good? I'm really torn between exceptionally good and toward day good. I think I'm going to land on exceptionally good just because I had a small handful of reservations. I mean, no movie is going to check every single box for me, but this one came about as close as, as it can. I might watch it again in the next couple months and see if I feel that this should be retroactively bumped up to Torde good. Cause I kind of feel like a movie you need to, you need to really know it and really love it to get that Torde good. But uh, it, it's right up there for me. So I'm landing on exceptionally good for, for now. So before this episode, Dan shared with me a document that he made, a spreadsheet detailing the movies we've covered so far. And there's only been three episodes before this one, but this is a pretty detailed document. And it has our past scores that we have given to each film and the differences between us. And here, I would say, no difference. I agree. This would either be a 7 out of 8 or an 8 out of 8 for me. Exceptional or the very top offering toward a good. I think I have to put a little more critical thought into what would be a perfect movie for me. What what really takes that 8 out of 8 guaranteed. Um, but this is close. Parasite is very good. It's very well made. And it's effective. Uh, I think I will settle for now at a 7 out of 8. An exceptionally good. So moving on to It Happened on Fifth Avenue. For me, this is just trademark vintage good. I enjoyed it, but I will not be thinking about this movie for years to come the way I think I might be for Parasite. You know, I had a couple of substantial complaints, but overall, very positive viewing experience. Of course, some of that is probably somewhat from the framing. I don't If I had just turn this on on a Saturday morning would I have enjoyed it quite as much without the the hook of this podcast and comparing it to Parasite I don't know but it's as you said good Capra-esque fun and for me it's good it's a five level five out of eight I'm gonna match you again that's my feeling as well put it on at Christmas time if people are really into it queue up Parasite next see how they feel about that one make for a good holiday get together any parting thoughts? Yeah, so I think this parting thoughts section is a space for us to talk about anything else we've been watching or reading or encountering or just thoughts in our head. So for me, um, one thing that I've been doing is I've been during quiet times at work where I just kind of need to do rote, repetitive tasks. I will turn on a movie that I know will be low brain power. Particularly, I've been going through a kind of teen romantic comedy phase. It's one of my soft spots. And I particularly like movies where there's something going on with best friends that are one, one's a boy and one's a girl. Where exactly does their relationship stand? That, that's, one of, that's one of my tropes. I like that, that type of movie. Some of the ones I've watched have been good. I'm actually not going to reveal all the ones because I think one or more of them might be a good episode down the line. Though I don't want to be too focused on the, the teen comedies because we did have a college comedy last time. Yesterday, I watched the Netflix rom-com called The Kissing Booth, and it is just so aggressively bad. Like, it was just making me angry as it was on, but I wanted to finish it so I could mark it as, as watched on Letterboxd, 
and could like have a informed enough opinion to be articulate in why I hated it so much. It is just a bad movie. I had no doubt. I didn't look this up to verify, but I have absolutely no doubt it was written by an older guy because it, everything about the, the teen women is like weirdly fetishized. And this gawky girl goes from never having been kissed to uh, bumping uglies with the hot guy. And like six scenes culminate in her taking off her clothes to comic effect. And the male actor, the lead, is just an absolute zero. He's, he's nothing. So if you're looking for an enjoyable way to kind of turn off your brain, don't bother with The Kissing Booth on Netflix. Well, thank you for that. I will know to avoid it. Although I have wondered, this is perhaps not the time or place, but I've wondered if A Kissing Booth was ever actually a real I thing. I don't know. Or is that just a, like a storytelling mechanism? Yeah. Is that just a contrivance of fifties drama? Yeah, I'm not sure. Things to wonder. Questions we may never know the answer to. What about you? Do you have well, any, any parting thoughts or any anything that you've been watching or thinking about? Well, this was more of an assignment this week than usual. So I haven't watched too much else. There's a new doc series on Netflix about the Challenger explosion. Uh, in 1986, well, I've been watching that. I haven't heard anything about it. It's that. interesting. I, I'm I'm big into space exploration, so it's been cool seeing the and, and the 80s too. So a lot of 80s stock footage of behind the scenes of the space cool. program. Pretty neat. I'll have to check that out. My my three year old daughter is really into space travel as well. She's kind of more like cartoon planets and stuff. Drum you know, not necessarily uh, detailed dramas of violently exploding spacecraft so so one parting thought i will share is i have some more of these uh ideas of movies with similar premises that wind up at drastically different destinations uh would you be game for another pairing like this at some point this was really fun i'm not sure how much of it is the fact that i quite enjoyed the movies particularly parasite but this is this is a cool concept I think we can maybe workshop it a little more and figure out how to get it a little more brisk. This has been our longest episode yet, but I, I, Streamlined. Think, it's, I think it's promising and fun. Uh-huh. I definitely, I just like the concept. Like I want to hear what more of these things are that end in different ways. So I'm looking forward to more of these for sure. But of course, Dan takes the helm next here on the goods. So would you like to give us a little sample spoon taste sure. of what comes so, next? Listeners do not necessarily know when we're filming this, but I will reveal that it, it is the day after the first debate of the 2020 presidential election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And uh, suffice it to say, I'm a little cynical about politics at the moment. A little uh, not very inspired by where our presidency is at. So I thought I would go to a slightly better vision of a president, Uh, maybe a little bit of escapism there. Uh, So Aaron Sorkin is famous for writing The West Wing, among many other things. One of those is before the West Wing. It was, I think, his third movie that he wrote, his third writing credit. He wrote a film called The American President, which is a prototype for many of the things he would do in the West Wing. Although this one is a little more comedic and a little bit, it's got a romance element in it, let's say, without uh, giving it all away. Have you seen this film, Brian? So I have not. This is going to be good because I've also been trying to put together a list of like movies that I need to watch at some point. And this has been one I've been meaning to knock out because I did binge a couple years back The West Wing. 
and I've I've definitely heard that this kind of set the stage for it. Like you said, it was kind of the the dry run. And what I think is interesting is that one has got Martin Sheen and one has got Michael Douglas, and now I I can't tell ever <laughs> which one's is Michael which. Michael Douglas. All right, so it's Martin yes. Sheen on the TV show, right? Okay, but definitely it's like Wall Street. Oh, that's the Martin Sheen one. No, it's Michael <laughs> Douglas, s- and it's just always back and forth for me for sure. So I think we'll have a lot to talk about, and I have some theories on how this movie has been way more influential on American culture than we realize, kind of a uh, domino effect on the shape of the modern dramatic landscape. So that'll be a little teaser for us talking about The American President, the 1995 movie directed by Rob Rayner and written by Aaron Sorkin. I look forward to it as we head into the thick of election season. So wanted to thank you all for joining us for another installment of The Goods. Join us next time. 